Hello and what is shaking, everybody? It is another episode of the Wind Up Podcast. I am your host, Mike of MTGA Wines. And we are getting into our May Q&A. Oh, shoot, that rhymes. That's nice. All right. Uh, Today, we're diving into the mailbag, so to speak. Uh, We have a few questions that have been submitted by you all uh, over the last few weeks. We're going to dive into them. Uh, Thank you all so much for submitting these, whether it's been in uh, tastings out at the winery, whether we've got them uh, online. You can, of course, submit any questions that you would like to have answered in the comments section uh, through our website. If you go to mtjwines.com, there's a great little form that you can fill out at the bottom of our home page to submit your questions, anything and any everything you want to know, we'll try and dive into. And if need be, we'll try and do some research and you know figure out a little bit more of the nuts and bolts, whether it's the business side of the wine industry, whether it's winemaking, vineyard management, any and all that stuff we can dive into. And in this episode, we've got some fun questions to answer. We'll try and rattle through as many of these as we can. I have a kind of a continuing list So, you know, if we don't happen to get to a question in one episode, we'll definitely roll it over to another episode. In fact, we have five Wednesdays in this lovely month of May. So if we don't quite get through all these, we might just carry this over into next week as well and kind of continue on down this trend. So without further ado, let's dive in, shall we? Now, question number one, the best tip for buying wine in your local shop and restaurant that you have? Uh... I guess it's not really a question. It's more of it's just kind of asking, you know, how you how do you shop for wine? But um, realistically, it's it's it can be intimidating, right? You walk into a, your local liquor store, grocery store. Maybe you're looking at a wine list in a restaurant. There's just a barrage of options, right? Like you can't really tell what's what, who's on first, what's on second you know, whatever the case may be. And you're trying to figure out, all right, I know what I'm in the mood for, but I have no idea where to even start with this. And typically, if that's the case, and this happens to me all the time, whether it's a restaurant here locally, or maybe even going to a local wine shop, or even a wine shop outside of Napa, the first thing I try and do is that if I don't, if I can't find, you know, right out the gate what I'm looking for, I ask somebody for help. I know it can be tough. It can be embarrassing. I mean, shoot, even for me, people are like, why did you ask? Like, you know wine, just order something. I'm like, well, I need to know what people are in the mood for, what kind of food we're cooking, what kind of mood I'm in. Like, what are we actually going to get into here? So my pro tip for ordering wine in any situation is asking questions (laughs) and figuring out, hey, where can I find this? Stylistically, where does this wine go? What, you know, what do you think about it personally? You know, if versus, you know, this one, from this region with this price point this one's ten dollars cheaper you know is there going to be a significant quality difference it's okay to ask like really honest questions but the best tip i can give is just have a few like keywords in your arsenal to kind of figure out where you want to go that way as you're asking those questions or maybe there's some descriptions on those labels or in those shops or on those uh you know restaurant wine lists you can kind of you know parse it out a little bit more. So if you're looking for a kind of a more crisp and refreshing white wine, if you're looking for a richer, a creamier white wine, if you're looking for a bigger, bolder red, if you're looking for kind of lighter, uh, more acid-driven and refreshing kind of wine, uh, if you're looking for something that's really rich and heavy, just really basic descriptors like that go a long way in terms of trying to figure out what you're actually going to end up buying. That, that helps immensely. But even more than that, be willing to explore. Don't don't kind of 
pigeonhole yourself into saying, I only drink Cabernet. I know a lot of you out there love our Napa Cabernets. Uh, they're outstanding, of course. You know, they, they do really well for themselves. However, we would hate for you to get tired of drinking Napa Cabernet. So you might as well try some other things. Maybe trying Petit Syrah would be decent. Maybe trying Syrah would be good. Maybe leaning more on Bordeaux blends could be halfway decent. There are a lot of different ways that you can go to find big, intense flavor without having to drink the same thing over and over and over again. You know, variety is the spice of life. And that's really how we operate when we're buying wine in a local shop or at a restaurant is typically we kind of know stylistically, like we want something, it's hot out. We want something lighter and refreshing, or, you know, it's kind of cold. I'm eating a steak. I want something big and bold. And we kind of have those categories in our head. And then we try and find something different that we've never had before to try and experience something. Maybe we find something that's really, really yummy. And we end up buying that later on down the road from the winery directly because you're like, hey, this was really good in this restaurant. We'd love to have some so that we can drink it just more regularly. And that way you kind of find other things to drink and have around and throw into your wine fridge or into your wine rack in your kitchen or whatever. That way you just have more cool stuff. So if you're shopping for wine in any way, shape or form, it's worth one kind of having a few descriptors of kind of like what you're in the mood for, whether you're drinking it that night or that day or later on down the line, like, you know, because something like for us, we're, we always run out of white wine. We, we rarely have a bunch of white wine laying around. So it's like we, we when we shop, we shop for a lot of white wine to kind of stock up and have stuff for these warm spring and summer days that we're starting to have. And so we know when we walk into a shop or we walk into a restaurant, it's like, okay, well, this is kind of what we're in the mood for. It's a warm day. We'll start there and try and keep that around. And you just kind of you, you build from there. And you never know if you try something new and different, you're going to find like a new favorite that you're going to have to hunt down, learn more about and open up some new doors uh, for you to enjoy. So you know, have a few descriptors in mind and be willing to explore. That's really the best advice I can give whenever you're shopping for wine, whether whether it's in a retail shop setting or in you're in a restaurant. It's fun to try different and new things. And it's always okay to fall back on the old reliables. You know, it's you can always, if you know there are a few wines that your local places have and you just like, you know what, this is always my line it up, knock it down red wine. We just need to have a few bottles around the house or if it's on that restaurant list, I know what I'm getting and I'm not taking any risks tonight. Boom, have it. Now you have your kind of ace up your sleeve for the stuff you know you're going to enjoy no matter what. So you can always default to the stuff that you know you enjoy too. All right. How do you miss, how do you not miss a wine at its peak? Recommended aging times vary so much. How do you know when is the right time to open a bottle of wine? Oh, goodness gracious me. Um, so this is, um, this is going to be one that is going to annoy some people probably with my answer because here's the deal. Actually, there's another, our, okay, we're going to combine these two questions. So this was, so how not to miss a wine at its peak. Recommended aging times vary so much. How do you know when the wine is ready? And two, how do winemakers know when the wine will be ready? I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Come in close. We don't. We have no idea. Um, so, and we always kind of, that's why you always see a range. You always see, oh, it'll be good in seven to 10 years. It'll be good in 10 to 15 years. There's always a ballpark because based on our past experience and what we know of the wines we've made from certain vineyards and certain styles, we can ballpark it. We can say, hey, this is when, 
you know, typically our wines are really, really good in the past. So this one will probably follow the same, but it might have some wiggle room to it. We actually have no real idea as to when our wines are going to be like, quote unquote, perfect. So I want you to keep that in mind is that this is not a perfect science. This is very subjective and there's not like a strict timeline. Many of you, if, if you've been out tasting with me, you've heard me say that I love our Merlots in the seven to 10 year range. That's just right now as they're tasting, if you're having the 2013, 14, 15, they're just beautiful right now. Those, those wines are just awesome. They, they're not, I wouldn't say they're at their peak, but they're just really good right now. So I typically kind of default that if you're into hanging on to our wine, Seven to ten years for our Merlot is great. That's a, that's a perfect ballpark. You've let it age. It's smoothed out. It's really complex. It's beautiful. And you can dive right into it. That's not going to be true of every other Merlot that's out there. There are going to be plenty of Merlots that fall apart well before that. There might even be some that last way longer than that. Uh, especially if you look at like Right Bank Bordeaux Merlot-based wines that have some other things blended into them like Cabernet and Cabernet Franc. And they kind of extend the longevity of those wines. Yeah, they might last a really good long time. So realistically, this is how you need to consider aging wine. And if you're really going to get into this, one, you need good storage. This big other side, if you're, on, if you're watching, there's like a big black box with a glass door on it behind me. That's our wine fridge. That's all for all the stuff that we're, we plan on hanging on to for a decent amount of time, whether it's a couple of years or maybe 10 plus years. It's kind of the collection, if you will. And what's even more important is that in that, there are multiple bottles of the stuff that we want to hang on to. Why do you need multiple bottles? Here's why. Because if you buy that one bottle and it's you're told, hey, this should peak in around 10 or 15 years, one, you're working with a range, right? So you're not exactly sure. And two, if you have that one bottle, you're like, well, we're saving it. It's kind of for a special occasion. We don't just want to open it up willy-nilly. And you just end up never opening it because you don't want to risk drinking it too soon. And then you start to get to the point where like, oh, we might have missed it. It could be too late. What if what if we don't like it? Ah, we'll just wait and we'll figure it out later. So it kind of gets kicked to the curb in both cases. The way to alleviate that is to have at least a couple bottles of it because Let's say you buy two bottles of a wine and you know you want to save them for roughly 10 years, right? A couple of years go by, you open up your cellar or you're looking at your wine rack and you're like, oh, we still have these two. We knew we wanted to save these. Why don't we open one and just see where it's at? You immediately have kind of a built-in insurance policy if you have at least a bottle. In a perfect world, you have more than that because you probably want to try these wines at least every couple of years, if not once a year, to kind of see how they're evolving. Because the last thing you want to have happen is to save wine for 10 years. You get to, let's say you buy a six pack, right? You're going to save it for 10 years because that's when it's going to be the best it is. You spend good money on the six pack of wine. You open up the first bottle after 10 years and you don't like it. Now you're out six bottles of wine that you spent good money on. And we hate to see that happen because we want our, our, we make our wines to be consumed, not for you to just sit there and hope they're good later. So 
realistically, what you can do with a few of those six bottles is try it every other year. Maybe you get to year seven and you're like, you know what? This one's like really good right now. Why don't we just start drinking it whenever we want? Maybe we save a last bottle for that 10 year mark, but let's drink the other five while we know it's good. That's the insurance policy when it comes to aging wine. I think we talked about this uh, in one of our very, very early episodes, I think before we had as, you know the followers that we do now. But I, this is something we'll probably cover multiple times because it's important. Because we don't want you to you know, feel like you've, you know, any, anyone who makes wine, we don't want you to feel as though you missed a wine at its peak. We don't want you to feel as though you wasted your money because oh, you waited that amount of time and now you don't like the wine because it evolved a certain way, or maybe it didn't evolve a certain way, and it's not what you expected anymore. So the key ingredient is having a couple of bottles or a few bottles of it around. That way you can try it every once and a while. This is what we do, because, like I said at the beginning, we don't know exactly when these wines are going to peak. We have a general idea of a span of a handful of years. And if you're a young wine producer like we are, we've only been around for 14 years, our oldest wine is from 2010. You know, that that's still a young wine in the grand scheme of things, at least in my mind, because I'm that weirdo that loves old wine. But I'm that person that's like, hey, this still is plenty of life left in it. It's still tasting really, really good. Continue trucking right along. Our 2011 is the same way. Our 2012 is the same way. So it's like, okay, these wines have not peaked. They're definitely not fading. So we'll just keep trucking along. They're well past the 10 year mark, but they're doing just fine. So even, you know, I, I recommend our Merlots at seven to 10 years. They could easily go 15 realistically if you wanted them to. So again, it's a ballpark and it's nice to have a few bottles around. And I do this at least once per year as I line up a bottle of every wine that I've made from like, say, all of our Merlot or all of our Pinot or whatever. And I taste through that vertical. Uh, vertical tasting, for those that don't know, is you're tasting every year back to back to back to back or like a series of years back to back to back of the same wine so you can see how it's evolved, how it's changed. Is it consistent? Uh, is Are certain vintager, vintages uh, more complex or more interesting? Are certain vintages kind of quote-unquote better now and maybe other ones have kind of faded a little bit and there's kind of this ebb and flow to them? So I try and do that at least once a year, typically during the summer before harvest, to kind of wrap my head around where our wines have gone over the years, what's tasting really well now, what needs more time. Uh, luckily, nothing is fading just yet, so we're just kind of cruising with what we have right now. Uh, so to not miss a wine at its peak, you gotta have a few bottles laying around. You just have to. Uh, if you have just one bottle or even two bottles, it's really hard to nail it, it just is. And going on the recommendation of people that are trying to just give you a guesstimate of where it can be isn't honestly all that helpful anyway. So it's it's easier to try that wine every once in a while. It might impact the pocketbook a little bit more ahead of time, but at least you know you're going to be able to try that wine every once in a while and kind of figure out where it's at. And then at a certain point, if you're like, you know what, it's just really great now. Let's just keep opening bottles. That way we know we're going to enjoy it. That is the way to go about it. So if if there's one thing <laughs> that you take away from this Q&A, it's that. Just make sure you don't miss a wine. It's worth opening it up, trying it, and seeing where it's at. 
Again, many of you have heard me say this multiple times. You could get hit by a grape truck tomorrow. You might as well drink good wine tonight and enjoy yourself. So, you know, just let her rip, right? I mean, if you're listening to this, it's probably middle of the week. You might be in the car driving somewhere for work. It could be a great day. It could be a long day. Go home, open yourself a great bottle of wine, and just enjoy it for what it is. And don't worry about it. Just wine. We make wine to be enjoyed. You know, if you really, if you're really into aging wine, like some of us are, I mean, that that's going to be the way to operate. And if you're just kind of getting into wine, don't feel like you have to wait for a wine to get better. It's okay just to drink it now and enjoy it for what it is. Hundred percent. Ooh, this kind of ties into this actually. This is like a three-parter. I like this. I like this a lot. Um, so this is actually from a, a great question that I got in the cellar a couple weeks ago from some of the guests that were out our way. And it is, what is your best tip for increasing your overall enjoyment of wine? And this is, uh, this is kind of a tough one actually, because it's so simple and it really, it, wine is so kind of complicated at times and romantic and there's so much kind of pomp and circumstance. We talk about these great vintages and the history of it, these iconic moments in our lives when we remember opening great bottles of wine with friends and family when we we're traveling abroad or whatever the case may be. Like it's so easy to get wrapped up in like the romance of wine, you can kind of forget to just shut up and enjoy it every once in a while. And I think that would be my number one tip for anybody, wine geeks and wine novices alike, is that it is okay just to shut up and enjoy it. You do not have to overthink it. You do not have to pick out the flavors and characteristics. You don't have to know about the hillside it's grown on. You don't have to know about the fermentation practices or how long and what barrels it was aged in. It's okay to just put your feet up, pour yourself a glass of wine and enjoy it. Now, there are plenty of folks like me that love the geeky aspects of wine. You know, when I open up a wine at home, which I'm probably going to do shortly after I'm done recording this, because uh, it is, I'm actually recording this in the evening on Tuesday. So, <clears throat> You know, we're going to, I'm going to have a glass of wine and edit this and get it posted for tomorrow morning on Wednesday morning. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm just, that, that first glass that I have is just, I'm just putting my feet up. I try not, I actively try not to think about it because my life is wine. Like it, the gears are always turning. And at a certain point, I want to just be able to sit back, relax and enjoy it with no frills, no fuss, no mess. I don't want to try and evaluate things. I don't want to try to get too geeky about it. I actively try just to decide whether or not I like this wine. And if I like the wine, I continue drinking it. And if I don't like it, I open up something else. It's that simple. And I think that is really the best tip I can provide for just increasing your overall enjoyment of wine. Just sometimes just try not to think too hard about it and just decide that you like this wine and it's good and you're going to go you know, catch the rest of the game or you're just going to hang out in the backyard or whatever and just enjoy it for what it is. Now, if you do want to go down the rabbit hole a little bit, and go past just the do I like it or don't I like it mentality that we're talking about. I would say it's nice to learn a little bit more about that producer 
who made it specifically the winemaker and, and the company they're working for and a little bit about that vintage and maybe what they went through to make that wine. And it's something where it's like, okay, you talk about, say, a 2020 vintage in Napa where you have these crazy fires. It's a, it's a tr- the trials and tribulations of 2020 for everyone were nuts. And you open up this wine, you, you go back and you just start reminiscing about how nutty that year was and how it must have been for winemakers in and around Northern California and up in Oregon, uh, you know, during these major, you know, crazy fire seasons. Um, you can go back to a year like 2011 and say, hey, man, this was, you know, this really kind of wet, wet, rainy, cold year in Napa. There was a lot of struggle that, you know, that winemakers had to go through to make good wine in this year. It's awesome that this wine is as good as it is because there were so many trials and tribulations. You can look at a year like 2019 or even 2021 where Mother Nature for us personally kind of lined it up for us. We didn't have... You know, I mean, for as far as I can remember between those two harvests, there was nothing that really like stood out as far as things that were edgy or thing how we struggled. And you're like, you know what? These are just line them up, knock it down. Awesome years that are just kind of where you get kind of that classic Northern California or Napa style of wine. And now you have kind of this Rolodex of history, you know, in your head. And you can filter through it and say, hey, if I'm drinking this wine and I know a little bit about what was happening in that area and I know where this producer is and who made it, now you have a little bit more like a personal connection to it. You can reminisce a little bit more. You can There's a little bit more emotion involved uh, when it comes to your overall enjoyment of wine. So I think that's something that can make wine a little bit more special. You know, at a certain point, just drink it and enjoy it for what it is. But if you do really want to put a little bit more effort in it's worth knowing who made it where it came from and maybe some of the trials and tribulations they went through to get that wine from grape to bottle in that particular year Um, it is something that anytime we open up any of our wines and like that vertical tasting i mentioned in the last question i'm immediately going through those and, and for each wine i'm thinking about that specific vintage what we went through how what our operations were like how we were doing things and how it's evolved over time, given what Mother Nature's doing, given you know how we've changed as a, as a wine business and all that good stuff. So it's kind of this nice little archive that you slowly get to you know drink your way through, basically. So I mean, all of us have one of these handy dandy little smartphones on us. It's not too hard to Googleize you know what that wine is, where it came from, and maybe a little bit more about that vintage in that area, and just learn a little bit of something about it. I think that's where wine can be you know, very special is that it kind of ties into a little bit more of that education and knowledge and emotion of what's going on around the world, realistically, when it comes to farming and agriculture, and this crazy fermented grape juice that we've developed (laughs) over a couple of millennia, you know, Um, it's it's kind of a that's I think what makes wine really, really fun is what keeps me coming back to it for sure, is trying to find new wines, one that I like, but two that I can really connect with and have some emotional tie into when it comes to enjoying them, you know, kind of day in, day out, year in year out so on and so forth so all right oh some of you are gonna hate me after this next question i'll tell you that much i'll tell you that much so this next question is what is the most overrated wine and food pairing some of you are already already know my answer to this wine and chocolate 
is the most overrated wine and food pairing out there today. Wine and chocolate is my least favorite pairing in the world. I don't like it. I think it's silly. I don't think the chocolate tastes good with the wine. I don't think the wine tastes good with the chocolate. 99.9999 repeating times out of 10, or 100, I guess, because I said 99, right? Whatever. The vast, overwhelming majority of times, the pairing does not work. It's awful. Avoid it like the plague. The exception to that rule typically is if you have a wine that is as sweet, roughly, as that chocolate that you're having. Or you have a super bitter chocolate that matches up with the structure of, say, the red wine that you're drinking. So, but really bitter chocolate, a lot of us don't like. You know, it's very bitter. It's natural not to really like. I love bitter things like Campari and soda, like a good Negroni. Like the more bitterness, kind of the better. Like I love that in my beverages in general. So like really bitter chocolate, I adore. It's super, super good. I love it. And it works, kind of when it's incorporated into a dish of some sort with, with wine. Uh, milk chocolate, don't even bother. If you're pairing milk chocolate with your Cabernet and it's really, really good, that means that Cabernet is probably sweeter than you think it is. <laughs> um, and, and I know people that love, like even with our Cabernet, speaking of which, they're like, we love this with chocolate. I'm like, I don't know how you do because there's no reason why that pairing should work. This is a bone dry, no residual sugar, nothing left in it. This should not work with a chocolate pairing. It just should not. Now, the other, I guess, the, the thing that I do love with chocolate, if I'm going to do something like this, is like a port of some sort. A, a decent tawny or ruby port of some sort that, again, has enough sweetness to it that matches up with the chocolate. That'll work super, super well. But you, it kinda, you can't have, I, I've yet to find, and I'm sure there's someone out there that's done it, so I just probably haven't experienced it yet. But I've not found a wine and chocolate pairing, like the yin and the yang of like the super dry wine and the super, and even with a bitter chocolate, that really works that well. I, just the wine and chocolate thing, it's time to move on. If you're doing like wine, like ugh, it's the, it's like the chocolate covered strawberry, like the milk chocolate covered strawberries with red wine is just so bad. It's so bad. I understand some of you like it. I understand some of you adore it and that it's like a, a guilty pleasure or whatever, but it's not good. Sorry. I hate to burst your bubble. Wine and chocolate's overrated. If you're going to do red wine with anything, just give me a steak. If you're a vegetarian, grill some cauliflower and season it really, really well. <laughs> um, you know, it's, yeah, it chocolate yeah the wine and chocolate thing i just don't understand i don't know how or i should probably we should die. you know what we're gonna do we're gonna dive into i'm gonna make note of this and we're gonna dive into like classic wine pairings and the history of them and how they came to be i'm gonna see if i can't do some research on that and i think maybe in early june we'll try and do like a like a educational like wine pairing like here's Kind of the classics here's why they work here's what you look for in pairings and we'll kind of dive into that a little bit this is a great question one because i get to be kind of cheeky about it but two because it opens up some doors for a conversation we just haven't had on the podcast just yet which is wine and food pairings because there are a lot of things out there that are like the 
tried and true, you know, hey, this is how you do things, or hey, this is what pairs really well with this, or hey, this is what you need to do, quote unquote, to enjoy this wine with this food. And the reality is, is you don't really need to do anything. You just kind of, again, drink what you like, other than wine and chocolate, just stop it. <laughs> now, if you love wine and chocolate, go for it. I won't hold it against you. I'm just going to think you're weird because I don't understand it. I mean, that being said, I mean, my dad, still to this day, his favorite wine with like a nice big like ribeye steak is Chardonnay. So, you know, who am I to talk about wine and chocolate? The dude's drinking Chardonnay with his steaks. To be fair, it is actually really good. So take that for what you will. For those of you that know the Todd, you know he's got opinions and he's just going to run with them. <laughs> you know, you know how that goes. But yeah, so yeah, the wine and food pairing thing, it's again, it, go, it always goes back to the subjectivity and just drinking and eating what you enjoy. But in, realistically, in my opinion, the most overrated wine and food pairing is chocolate with red wine. It's just not, it just does not do it for me. Not at all. Not at all. All right, let's see what else we got here. Okay. Ooh, actually going back to the business side of things. We have been touching a lot about the business of, of wine and kind of the dollars and cents and nuts and bolts of what makes a wine, small wine or even a large wine business go. Um, this is a kind of a poignant one, I suppose. Let me make sure I have the time down for this because I'm trying to timestamp these. So if you're kind of breezing your way through these, you can kind of explore what questions are what. Um, in the description, I always try and list the timestamps for which questions are where. So that way you can kind of fast forward as you go uh so this guy is with the actually this is pretty good with the rising cost of land grapes supply chain everything that's involved labor everything that's involved with wine how do you actually survive as a small wine business i mean shoot i mean we've we've touched on this a little bit and, and I think I have, with some of the past episodes, if you go back to our two like wine business episodes, I, I can't remember what episodes they were specifically, uh, but go back and listen to those for sure because that'll dive into this in a little bit more detail. But the reality of, of this, and I think for any business, is you have to, have to, have to, have to have a good business plan. You need to have a strategy, you need to know what you're doing and what you're getting into. And I think this just goes for business in general. I've seen too many, far too many small wine businesses start and stop because they simply, oh, we made Napa wine. We hired on this great consulting winemaker. And now we're sitting on a bunch of inventory in a warehouse because we don't know how we're going to sell it. So to put this into perspective, when I decided that I was going to sell wine, when I, I made my first batch of wine in 2010, I had two barrels of it. It was all like 40 cases. It was not a lot. But, you know, 40 cases, it's, you know, 120, you know, it was a little less than 120 gallons worth of wine. And when I decided that I was going to sell it, I said, okay, let's go a little bit. I, I don't, I'm, I have a day job. Like I can't, I don't have a place to host tastings and do like the hospitality thing. Uh, that we do a little bit more of today, we're going to have to go through like retail shops, restaurants, kind of the more traditional, what we call three tier system, uh, where you're going through a distributor or broker and then to, you know, restaurants and retail shops, typically how, how it goes. And realistically, that's how the vast majority of wine is still sold today. And I figured, you know what, I have to sell it at a discount because 
you know, I, the restaurant or the retail shop is going to have to mark it up. So I have to sell it at either an FOB or a wholesale price. And I didn't do my math very well, which is why I lost money for quite a few years, but different story for a different day. Actually, I do talk about, I know I talk about, I talk about that in the, those other episodes. Um, but my, I at least had a plan. I was like, okay, I can at least sell it at X price, which is not what I want to be selling it for because it's not the retail price, but at least I'm getting the wine out there. I have money coming in. I can pay bills. I can pay down some credit card debt. And if I can just sell through as much as I can, we'll figure it out on the back end. It wasn't much of a plan, but at least it was a plan, right? It was just, we. this is how we're going to go about it. And this is the one thing I preach to anybody who's considering getting into wine or if they simply don't have a plan, it's just great one. Do you want to be in restaurants? Do you want to be in retail shops? If the answer is no, then it's like, okay, so you need a place to host tasting, sign people up for your wine club. You probably need to uh, get on the road and do events around the country. Do you not want to travel with it? Okay, well, if you don't want to travel with it, then ask the events. You just need a place to host people and get people on your mailing list. You know, there, there's plenty. We've talked about kind of the sales channels and, and, and how important kind of the four major ones are between, uh, you, know, you know, the direct to consumer side of things, which is, you know, a winery shipping it directly to you uh, through, you know, whether it be a tasting room or a wine club shipment or mailing list. Uh, we have the three tier system going through retail shops and restaurants. We have events around the country. Uh, or the world for that matter, where you're, you know, actively trying to sell your wine. Uh, and then you have, you know, online like e-commerce and, and things of that nature, which could probably be some combination of both direct as well as the three-tier system, depending on kind of who you're going with. Uh, there are plenty of different ways to go about it. You need to figure out what style of business you want to want run, how you want to conduct yourself and go from there. That's how you survive is you have a decent business plan. You know how much it costs you to make that wine. That way you can sell it for an appropriate price. Don't be like me and just make it make it up as you go and lose a bunch of money in the beginning. Uh, you know, try to actually do the math and make sure you know what your cost of doing business is, what your cost of goods are, what your operating cost, I mean, all that stuff is, and figure out what it's going to take for you to become a, a real a real life wine business. You know, that, that's how you survive is you have to have some sort of plan. I think one caveat, though, is that, you know, if you're going to enter into, let's say, the Napa Cabernet game, there's a lot of, I mean, Napa doesn't make a lot of wine in terms of its overall volume of wine production, but damn it, there's a lot of good Napa Cab out there. How are you going to distinguish yourself from the rest of the crowd and say, hey, this is why you need to buy our wine as well as or instead of these other wines? How are you going to differentiate yourself? What are you doing that's different than everybody else? Why should someone buy your wine versus someone else who's already been doing it for 40 years? Right, so you have to find ways to be creative and carve out that niche for yourself. That's that. I mean, that's how you. I mean, that's those are that's huge. You know, generalization in terms of how you kind of manufacture success within any industry. But realistically, you have to have a good product. You have to know how you're going to sell it. And three, what was three? I completely forgot what three was. Oh, you have to carve out your niche, and you have to provide some some something different something unique compared to everybody else that are your competitors technically right that's how you end up being successful um, and if you can stick to those guns and gain some traction you just slowly chip away and you keep and, and don't be afraid to adapt and overcome there are going to be things that work there are going to be a lot of things that don't and if you're not willing to change 
and adapt and evolve as a business, then you're probably dead in the water already. I mean, unless you're fine just throwing money down a money pit that's on fire. I mean, have at it. You know, more power to you if you're just going to keep keep throwing money down there. But I've worked for too many businesses that within, you know, relatively short periods of time, there were easy changes to be made that would have likely impacted the business both short term and long term in a very positive way. And maybe it would have been more of a grind in the short term, but long term, it probably would be, I don't know, in my honest opinion, doing a little bit better for itself. Um, I'm sure there are people that would argue that point with me, but I've talked to people all over this industry about, you know, ideas and strategies and things of that nature. And there's a lot of stuff that it's like, okay, you say you want to be exclusive, yet all your wines are available on your website and they're all discounted 20%. How is that exclusive? They're readily available. Uh, you know, they're not hard to get. That's not exclusive. Uh, you know, oh, you want to be by the glass in these restaurants. Guess what? Your, your white wine is, you know, $60 a bottle. How are you going to are you really going to discount it so it's by that much so it's by the glass you know for those that don't know typically if you're buying a glass of wine and say it's 15 dollars for that glass that was what the restaurant paid for the entire bottle that's how that works so you would be you know <laughs> that's that's kind of how that works so it's like it's, it's conversations like that where you're just like this doesn't make any sense and then the, and then you have the other side of it where it's like it's newer kids on the block that are new businesses that you know, it is expensive to make Napa Cabernet here, but you know what? We're just going to, our cab's $275 a bottle. That's our starting point. We don't care about, you know, our pedigree. We, we've got the hotshot consulting winemaker. We're just coming out of the gate hot and heavy, $275 a bottle, running with it. And then the wine goes nowhere uh, because you can spend as much money as you want. But if, again, if you don't have a solid plan to actually move through that inventory, then it's just going to sit there. So, uh, it's obviously, it's big generalizations in terms of the overall wine business and the overall success of things, but it certainly helps if you have some sort of business plan and strategy to actually get from making the wine to getting it out of the warehouse and into people's glasses. That's huge. That's everything. So, all right. I think that's it. We rattled through five. I mean, we did combine a couple of them, but still we rattled through five good ones. Uh, thank you all so, so much for tuning in. As always, I hope that kind of helped open the door for a lot of just the overall enjoyment and like purchasing of wine, just back home. Like, how do you shop for wine? How do you find wine? You know, when do you open wine? When do you buy it? How long does it need to be aged? So on and so forth. Uh, we'll keep diving into the back end of the business of the wine industry as well, uh, just so that we can, you know, really kind of geek out and hopefully share, you know, more and more with you all about what really makes this wine industry tick. So remember, please remember that if you have any questions, comments, uh, anything that you would like to be featured in our Q&A episodes, please leave them for us uh, in the comment section. You can DM us on any of our social networks uh, or there's a forum on our website, mtgawines.com. Scroll to the bottom. There's a form where you can submit questions there as well. Uh, remember to rate, review, share this with your friends. Uh, it'll help with the algorithm and trying to track this podcast down. I know folks have had a hard time finding it. Uh, that's just because we're still kind of small. We're still growing. We're still kind of doing our thing. So the more people that start downloading it and sharing it and all that good stuff, it's a huge help to help conquer the algorithm and get this podcast kind of out and about. So uh, for those that have been doing so, uh, thank you so much. It's been set. This has still been uh, just an immense amount of fun kind of diving into the nooks and crannies of the wine industry and hopefully providing you 
all with a little bit of uh, entertainment and insight into what really goes on uh, behind the scenes. Next week, we are getting into our fifth Wednesday bonus episode. Uh, since we rattled through all the questions this week, I'm going to come up with something fun. I am going to be coming off of the uh, Bottle Rock Festival. It's the big music festival that happens uh, in Napa. So we all, maybe we tie in like a good, like, we try and tie in like something uh, wine and music related. Or it's just, this might just be my decompression session next week. We'll see what happens. It's always a riot. Uh, for those that know, Day 3 Mike is coming back. It's a yearly thing. It always happens. All right, we'll catch you later, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in.